Welcome to UpToDate's new clinical podcast series based on our new product, UpToDate Pathways. UpToDate Pathways have been developed for use at the point of care to guide clinicians when managing a patient with a specific problem. Using these dynamic workflow tools, the clinician inputs patient-specific data and through a series of key decision nodes, is stepped through a pathway leading to optimal management of a specific patient. In these podcasts, an up-to-date clinician expert who assisted in the development of the related pathway will discuss some of the challenges clinicians face in making these decisions. Today, we'd like to focus on management of women with low bone density test result, or osteoporosis. Who should be treated and how? Our discussant is Dr. Cliff Rosen, Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston and Director of Clinical Research and Senior Scientist at Maine Medical Center. He's Section Editor for Bone Disease in UpToDate. I'm Dr. Nancy Sokol, Senior Deputy Editor at UpToDate and a Primary Care Internist. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rosen. Thank you, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be here. We would love for you to share your wisdom regarding management of a postmenopausal woman who's been found to have an abnormal bone density on screening for osteoporosis. Should she be treated? And if so, with what treatment? And how should she be monitored? But let's start by identifying the five or so most common things that we think clinicians might not be doing optimally in making these decisions. So here goes. Number one, withhold treatment, assuming that a woman is too old to benefit from therapy. Number two, rely on bone density scores as the only criteria for treatment decisions without assessing risk for fracture. Number three, forget to check or forget to replete calcium and vitamin D before starting therapy. Four, use alendronate inappropriately, either overcautiously because of concerns about osteonecrosis or risk for fractures, or injudiciously in women with risk factors for its use. Five, repeat bone density measurements too soon after beginning therapy or repeat them too frequently. And six, continue bisphosphonate treatment indefinitely. So do those sound to you like things that you have seen clinicians do that they might better do differently? Yes. So thank you, Nancy. Yes, uh, all those are, are some of what we see in referral practice frequently, both uh, referrals from primary doctors, but also from patients who are confused about what uh, their risk is, what their treatment is, and what their long-term uh, assessment should be and whether they need to continue drugs. So those summarize, I think, the major issues in the osteoporosis field. Okay, so let's address these issues one by one. So number one, is there actually an age cutoff for treatment for osteoporosis? I would say absolutely not. Unfortunately, most of the clinical trials were in younger postmenopausal women because they were easier to recruit and had less comorbid factors that would complicate interpretation. But the fact of the matter is that older individuals are a greater risk for osteoporosis, no matter what their bone density is. And therefore, there is no upper age range at which you would stop or not you know, include in a treatment regimen. And we would argue actually just the opposite, that it's the older postmenopausal women in their 70s and 80s, particularly those who are frail, who require treatment because their risk is so much greater. So age is an independent risk for osteoporosis. And so based on T-scores alone, one could run into some difficulty in identifying those people at greatest risk because for a given bone density, age is a separate 
an important risk factor. Okay, well, that leads us to number two. For women with a T-score between minus one and minus 2.5, how should their fracture risk be assessed? And is assessment necessary if a woman has already had a fragility fracture? So once they've had a fragility fracture, their risk goes up considerably. And so assessing that is extremely important. And how do you define fragility fracture? So fragility fractures are those that occur from a fall from a standing height or less without major trauma, such as a motor vehicle accident, and or osteoporotic fractures in postmenopausal women involving the spine may occur spontaneously with minimal trauma or no trauma at all. So a woman with a borderline T-score that's something uh, greater than minus 2.5 with a fragility fracture would be considered a, a candidate for treatment? Absolutely. Very high risk. Somebody over 65, T-score minus 2.5 or, or lower, and a fragility fracture is really the best candidate for treatment. We would identify her as the ones not only that are best candidates, but likely to be the best responders to treatment as well. And for for women without a fragility fracture with a T-score, say, of minus 1.5, how would you assess her risk? So that's that's the most controversial aspect. And in the beginning, when we first developed new osteoporosis drugs in the late 80s, early 90s, everybody with T-scores below minus 1 or 1.5 were being treated. And it's clear that there is no benefit to treating those women who do not have additional risk factors. So beyond the T-score, one has to assess the other risk factors. With a T-score between minus 1 and minus 2.5, the likelihood of fracture is low unless those individuals are significantly older, beyond the age of 65, or have other additional risk factors, such as they've been on prednisone or glucocorticoids, they've had a previous fracture, as I mentioned, or there are smokers, or they have uh, diseases, secondary diseases that could contribute to osteoporosis, such as inflammatory bowel disease. So the up-to-date pathway and the up-to-date topics on osteoporosis have a reference to the uh, FRAX calculator. That's correct. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the FRAX calculator really provides us with the best long-term 10-year fracture risk identification, and that is probably your best assessment of what that individual is going to do over 10 years. And that incorporates a number of different components besides just the bone density. The bone density is put in there as one indicator. And of course, we know that that is one of the most significant risk tools. But age, as I mentioned before, is one of the important predictors, and that's incorporated into a simple FRAX tool, which you can access online at www.frax.com or through other websites by just Google searching FRAX. F-R-A-X, right? Right. So they calculate age, sex, weight, height, previous fractures we already talked about, family history of a hip fracture, smoking, rheumatoid arthritis, and glucocorticoids. And with what probability of fracture is the threshold for initiating treatment? We generally use a threshold of 3% or greater 10-year risk for a hip fracture or a 20% 10-year uh, fracture risk for any fragility fracture. 
So either of those two or both put that individual at high risk based on their 10-year projected fracture risk. So let's change gears a little bit and uh, talk about uh, calcium and vitamin D. Why is it important to bring patients to normal levels of calcium and vitamin D, and what are the normal levels? So that's a good question, and there's a lot of discussion about this in the literature. There's a lot of concern about too much calcium or not getting enough vitamin D. So we generally recommend 1,000 milligrams a day of calcium as uh, milligrams per day, and that's based on a couple of assumptions. One is that most people consume at least 500 milligrams in their diet, and therefore another 500 or 600 milligram tablet is certainly a reasonable supplemental dose. Ten years ago, we were recommending three 500-milligram calcium pills a day. That's clearly much too much because most people consume between five and 1,000 milligrams a day due to the fortification of most foods with some calcium. So my recommendation is 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams total calcium intake per day, best taken with the dietary calcium rather than a supplemental calcium. But many people don't have enough in the diet, so a one 500-milligram tablet is enough. Too much calcium can cause kidney stones, and we've learned that once you exceed 2,000 milligrams a day of total calcium intake, that would be a major risk for a subsequent kidney stone. So we try to avoid that. The issue of whether high calcium intake can cause cardiovascular risk is still debated, but currently, our sense is, is that there's not a major risk, particularly at the lower levels of calcium intake that we're recommending. And what about vitamin D? In respect to vitamin D, there's tremendous controversy. Some people advocate looking at the total serum 25D level and making sure that everybody is over 20 nanograms per ml, which is 50 millimoles per liter in those countries that use uh, standard uh, international units. And so that's a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. That's 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Others would recommend that based on our current calculations, 400 to 600 units of vitamin D per day will get most healthy people to that level or to a level of, of over 18 nanograms per ml. Our current recommendation is to at least assess the baseline vitamin D level at the time you're considering treatment for osteoporosis, and if it's less than 20, that supplementation is indicated, and generally we recommend uh, 800 to 1,000 units a day. And not to monitor the vitamin D level. That's correct. Once you have a baseline level, it's 100% absorbable, and there's really no need to continue to follow the vitamin D level unless one were worried that somehow there would be malabsorption or difficulty absorbing the vitamin D due to a, a gastrointestinal problem, something like gastric bypass patients who are somewhat high risk of osteoporosis. And the controversy really relates back to how much vitamin D is necessary for the bone. And both calcium and vitamin D are important to mineralize bone. And we should make the point that 
osteoporotic patients are not considered healthy patients. Much of the recommendations are based on healthy individuals who uh, come in and are screened for other diseases but are generally healthy. But osteoporotic patients really do require uh, supplemental calcium and vitamin D because as you use treatments for osteoporosis, such as alendronate or parathyroid hormone, you need to have that calcium incorporated into the skeleton. So it's absolutely essential that calcium and vitamin D be the starting point for any therapeutic regimen. Okay. So that brings us to discussing alendronate, which is the bisphosphonate that I think is most commonly used, at least in the United States. So when is it not the preferred drug for women who meet criteria for treatment for osteoporosis? So that's a good question. I I think there are a couple of uh, issues behind that. One is cost. Two is patient preference. And this is very important. And this comes back to how much the patient knows and understands and is worried about potential side effects. So for one, alendronate is generic and it's very inexpensive and it's very effective. We have the biggest database uh, on alendronate treatment in terms of reduction of risk for osteoporotic fractures. And so we know that it works. On the other hand, Gastrointestinal side effects can occur, so patients sometimes will complain of esophageal burning or uh, hiatal hernia-type pain, and so one would heed that warning, particularly in people who have that underlying disorder, not to give oral alendronate. But then the issue comes up about patient preference in respect to concern about atypical femoral fractures, which is an uncommon side effect of long-term use of bisphosphonates. Uh, And alendronate is the one that has been reported the most because it's been on the market for 20 years. The actual risk of atypical femoral fractures is very low, but it's not zero. And we still don't have a good way to predict who those individuals are who are going to develop what we call atypical femoral fractures or fractures below the trochanteric region, which occur without much impact and often are disabling and require surgical treatment. And so these occur in women who've been taking alendronate for more than five years generally? So the issue of dose first and duration is still up in the air, but generally there is a duration-dependent effect. And what's interesting is many of the women who have atypical femoral fractures are younger women who don't have severe osteoporosis and were treated primarily because of their low bone density. So we try to avoid treating long-term younger postmenopausal women in their 50s unless they're at very high risk. And again, it comes back to risk profiling and patient preference. I mean, it's really important that we as providers get a sense of what the patient is thinking and what they know and what they want to do and how much risk they want to assume if they're going to take treatment. And so it requires a very significant discussion with the, with the patient. And what about osteonecrosis? So osteonecrosis of the jaw is, is extremely rare in the osteoporotic patients. It's much less frequent than atypical femoral fractures. And it's generally those individuals who are on glucocorticoids or have diabetes and have had oral injury or oral surgery. It's more common in patients who are undergoing chemotherapy and have malignancies. But in the garden variety, postmenopausal osteoporotic individuals, very, very uncommon. 
So what about a woman taking a lendronate who needs dental surgery? What, what advice do you give her? So it's interesting. So it's come full circle. Initially, we had no concerns about it. Then the American Dental Association said anybody who's had surgical plans for dental implants must come off a lendronate, although there's no real good longitudinal data on what that time point is, how long they need to stay off of it, because all these bisphosphonates stay in bones. So it's very arbitrary. Now, unless they're undergoing major dental surgery, most individuals that require uh, any kind of dental corrective surgery, such as uh, fillings and even implants, it's much less common to worry about osteonecrosis of the jaw. Major dental surgery is a different story, and definitely those individuals should avoid uh, being on bisphosphonates or stop them prior to surgery. Okay, and in general, what about the real contraindications to using alendronate? I know that a woman can't take alendronate if she has a history of esophageal dysplasia or Barrett's esophagitis. Are there other contraindications? Well, you know, it's interesting. There really isn't uh, other contraindications other than the concern. Obviously, you would not want to treat somebody who's had a previous atypical femoral fracture or has had osteonecrosis of the jaw. Be very cautious about individuals who are undergoing chemotherapy, particularly if they've had oral surgery. The esophagus is the one target area. There's a few hints of data about atrial fibrillation, but it's not a contraindication to use alendronate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So although the pathway itself doesn't uh, specifically address this, a woman who's initiated uh, treatment, presumably with alendronate, uh, how soon would you do a follow-up scan on her? And how often does that need to be repeated? So I would say that we generally don't recommend a follow-up scan until two years after initiation of therapy. And the reason for that is multiple, but generally there's a fair amount of regression to the mean so that if you measure it one year and then remeasure it at two years, there's sort of a sine wave phenomenon where it can go down, then come back up. And so as a steady state, we generally recommend not earlier than two years. Even though patients would like to see their response, I think it's worth another patient conversation to to sort of urge them to be patient about looking at what the response to therapy should be. And if um, they've shown some improvement in the bone density at uh, two years, is that enough? Do you repeat it again? I tend not to, but uh, patients want their bone densities done every two years. (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, It may improve compliance if they know that their treatment is showing improvement. But generally, risk reduction is less dependent on what their bone density change is. So many people will have a 50 or 60% reduction in risk and have virtually no change in, in their bone density. So it's very difficult to extrapolate from a change in bone density to what their absolute fracture risk reduction would be. For a woman who's uh, started a lendronate, does she need to take it forever? So the answer is probably not. The people who are most at risk are the ones that would most likely benefit from continued therapy. And those individuals are people who have sustained fractures after being treated and those individuals who still have bone density T-scores less than minus 2.5. So in other words, if you've had a woman and she's been on a legionate three years and her T-score is still minus 3.0, 
and she's had a vertebral fracture, that individual should be maintained on therapy. But people who are just treated for their bone density, for example, or one remote previous fracture and have an improvement in bone density, we generally recommend stopping after three to five years and let them get a rest for up to five years before they're re-exposed or retreated. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, having been on and talking to you about osteoporosis. So this is a lot of information to hold on to, though. We encourage clinicians who have access to the up-to-date pathways to search for the one titled Osteoporosis, Management of Postmenopausal Women, and to refer to it during a patient visit when deciding with a woman whether to initiate treatment and what medication might be best for her. As with all content and up-to-date, these pathways are continually updated when new information emerges that impact treatment decisions. We hope that they're helpful in guiding you and your patients to optimal therapy. Thanks again.